0: The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's open in prayer. Lord, thank you for our family. Thank you for this church, God. Thank you for the church at large. Thank you for the grace of these relationships that we get to enjoy one another, that we get to challenge one another, that we get to encourage one another, Lord. God, as we turn to your word today, pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would inflame our hearts, God, that we would rejoice over the good news of the gospel and that we would share with others this hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. James Clear is a behavioral psychologist who studies successful people across a wide range of disciplines and occupations. And what he tries to do is uncover the habits that makes these people the best at what they do. In one particular case, he wanted to study and understand why the Packers of the 1960s did such a great job at winning championships. He tells about how in July 1961... 38 members of the Green Bay Packers gathered together for training camp. The previous season ended with great heartbreak as they lit a fourth quarter lead and the NFL championship slip away to the Philadelphia Eagles. And so the Packers show up at training camp after this brutal loss and they are ready to work on the finer points of the game so that they can improve their skill set and go back and win the championship. But new coach, newer coach, Vince Lombardi had a very different idea. He took nothing for granted. He assumed that everybody was a blank slate and that none of the information from last year carried over to this year. And so he began with the most elemental statement as he held up a pigskin and said, gentlemen, this is a football. Lombardi was coaching a group of Dozen, dozens of professional athletes who just months prior came within minutes of winning the greatest prize of their sport. And yet every year he started with the very beginning. He started with the fundamentals. You know, oftentimes Christians look past the fundamentals of our faith. They look into what they consider deeper points of our theology. And it's not bad to do that. But when we lose sight of the fundamentals of our faith, we create a tremendous tragedy and we lose the primary focus of our hope. And so whether you have been a Christian for 60 minutes or for 60 years, knowing and believing and remembering the fundamentals of our faith is absolutely crucial. And so that's what we're going to cover today. So if you would please open up to Acts chapter 2. We will be in verse 22 through 41. Uh, It's page 1178 in the Children's Bible, page 910 in the Red Bible. By the way, if you're new here and you don't own a Bible, please take a Bible with you. We love to give away Bibles. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission. Says, go and be my witness throughout the entire earth. Like, go and share the good news of the gospel. And then he tells them, he says, but wait here for a while. Wait until I send the Holy Spirit and you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit and it will fill you with power to go and share the good news of the gospel. Well, last week we looked at Pentecost, which is the fulfillment of that promise. And in that time we saw the Holy Spirit is sent upon the disciples of Jesus and they start speaking in tongues, which means they start speaking fluently in other languages that the message of the gospel might go forth to these people who've gathered together for this festival of Pentecost, that they too might take the message and take it back into their homeland. Well, today as we move forward on this day of Pentecost, that we're still in the same day as we were last week, we're going to read the very first sermon given to the church. And it's a sermon given to the church by the Apostle Peter, in which he, under, or in which he explains the fundamentals of our faith. And so just to let you know, I'm aware all of us come here with a different place in our spiritual journey. Some of us are here just studying Christianity, wondering, what is Christianity all about? How is it different than other world religions? Some of us are here searching Christianity. We're saying, okay, is there any hope for me here? Is there any purpose for me here? Is there any way I can be forgiven for my sins? Some of us are here just simply sitting in Christianity. Maybe we've grown apathetic towards the faith, and we're just walking through the motions of what we're supposed to do, wondering if God will ever be precious to our heart. And some of us are here are wondering how to share Christianity. We're wondering what are the basics that must be communicated in order for someone to know the good news of Christ. Well, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, today is a great day to be here because Peter is going to address all of these things as he addresses the fundamentals of our faith. And so to condense these fundamentals, to simplify it, make it rememberable, I put it into three R's. The first is recognize. The second is repent. And the third is receive. So let's start with recognize. The first fundamental of our faith is a recognition of Jesus. The question is often asked, who is Jesus? For 2,000 years, people have been trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? People from various religions whether it be Muslim or Hindu or atheist or agnostic or whatever it is, all people are trying to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy in three years turned the world upside down? Who is this man, Jesus? And you have many answers coming out. Some people say that he was a great teacher. Some people say that he was a prophet. Some people said that he led a social revolution based on love. And I think Jesus did all of those. But Peter, in his first sermon, is trying to convince us that Jesus is someone much greater than those things. Look in verse 22 with me. Peter starts his sermon, the first sermon of the church, this way. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. First, we see this. Jesus was a man. He was a human being. He had flesh. He was living and breathing. And he was a man attested to by God. Now, this term attested means to accredit or to prove or to validate. And so what Peter is saying is that God the Father has proven to us who Jesus is. Now, how did God do this? How did the Father do this? Did he speak in a big, booming voice? I guess he kind of did when he said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Did he do it through visions and through dreams? Maybe a little bit, but he gave a much more certain incredible proof through other means. When we look at this verse again, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. If you remember Luke wrote not only Acts, but he also wrote the prequel to it, which is the Gospel of Luke. And in it, he records many of the miraculous things that Jesus does. That Jesus heals blind people, that he makes handicapped people walk, that he makes lepers clean, and he raises dead people. I mean, have you ever wondered what it must have been like to be there and to see Jesus do these things? How amazing and awestruck he must have been. But have you ever wondered why Jesus does these things? Why he does these miraculous signs? You know, I think we know Jesus does these because he loves people and he cares for people and he wants to see them whole again, which is completely true. But there's also a greater reason why Jesus does these miracles. That's why they're not just called wonders and mighty works, but Peter also calls them signs. You see, what is the purpose of a sign? The purpose of a sign is to point you to a greater reality, right? It's to point you in a certain direction. And so these signs happen to point us to who Jesus is, that we might recognize him for his identity and for who God made him to be. I don't know if you remember the story, but in Luke chapter seven, John the Baptist is in jail. And I'm guessing he's fairly discouraged about what God is doing. And so he sends two of his disciples to go to Jesus. And his disciples come to Jesus and and they give Jesus this question. The only question that John had. And the one question that John the Baptist had for Jesus was this. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In other words, are you the one that the Old Testament prophets talked about? Are you the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer that we have been longing for and waiting for and expecting and hoping for? And Jesus does something very interesting. It says, "In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, He bestowed sight. And then after this, then He answered John's disciples, saying, "Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind received their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. You know, it's such an interesting way to respond. When John's disciples come and say, are you the one to come? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Why doesn't Jesus just say yes? Why does Jesus do all these miracles? I mean, is he showing off? Well, of course not. See, Isaiah 35 tells us why Jesus did these things. In Isaiah 35, looking forward, it's in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus, looking forward to when the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, would come and redeem his people. This is what it says. In that day, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then it says, this is how we know when he comes. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see, the reason when John's disciples came and asked Jesus, are you the one? The reason why Jesus didn't just say yes is because really any yahoo could say yes, right? Any joker with a few disciples could say, yep, I'm the Messiah. But only one man could make the deaf hear, the blind see, and the dead come to life. And that man would be the Messiah. You see, those were signs to tell us who Jesus actually is. That Jesus is a long-awaited Christ. That he is Lord and that he is Savior. You see, no one questioned whether Jesus did miracles. If you read through the Bible, no one said Were we sure Jesus did miracles? What they question is what it meant about Jesus' identity. Some people thought that it meant that he was Satan. But the prophets and Jesus and Peter tells us that it validates and helps us recognize with certainty that Jesus was the promised Messiah and Redeemer of the people of God. Peter continues to defend the identity of Jesus. We'll read a little bit faster here, I promise. Verse 23, he's defending Christ's identity. He's defending Jesus as Lord in Christ by defending the resurrection. Verse 23 says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him, Jesus, up, losing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by. I love what Peter says here. He says, it was not possible for Jesus to stay dead. And the reason why it was not possible for Jesus to stay dead is because the Bible said that he would be raised from the dead. The Old Testament, the psalmist, David said, Jesus would be raised from the dead. And if God says it, it's going to happen. And so it was impossible for him to stay dead. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, that is Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you, talking about God the Father, will not abandon my soul to Hades. That is, it's not talking about hell. It's talking about the grave and the realm of death. Okay? Or let your Holy One see corruption. That is the deterioration of your flesh. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, I know Peter's argument may be very confusing to the modern reader. I know it was to me at first, and so let me help parse it out a little bit here. When Peter quotes David in verse 27, the Jews assumed that David was talking about himself. It even sounds like it when we read it. Okay, look at verse 27 again. This is David speaking to the Lord, okay? For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So when we read that, it sounds like David is talking about himself, right? Because that's what David said. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. But Peter points out there is a great problem with thinking that David was talking about himself. And the great problem is that David's dead. (laughs) That David died and he's still dead and his body wasted away. And so it could not refer to David. And so we cannot read it as if David was talking about himself, but we must read this as a messianic psalm, meaning that it was a psalm said by the Messiah, by the Christ that was to come. It was not from David, but from the line of David, from the Savior that was promised through his line. Verse 30 continues, he says, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants, one of David's descendants, on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that Christ was not abandoned to Hades, the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter is again reaffirming this fact. That Jesus is the prophesied one to come. That he is the one that would be raised from the dead. It wasn't applied to David. It was applied to the Christ who is Jesus. And then verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Such a fascinating statement. You know, Peter does not say Jesus rose from the dead and my friend's grandma saw it, right? He doesn't say Uncle Louie, you know, he knew a guy that saw Jesus raised from the dead. He said, we all saw it. Which means many of the people there actually saw Jesus bodily raised from the dead. But it also means more than that. You see, they didn't just witness the resurrection and Christ being raised from the dead. But they also witnessed the resurrection through the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You see, they could tell that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then the Holy Spirit would not have been sent. And so the evidence of Christ's resurrection is also in the manifestation of the Spirit coming down on the people of God. And that's what he says here as we continue. Verse 33, in talking about Jesus, he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, what a beautiful picture, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David, the great patriarch of the faith, did not ascend into heaven, But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, talking about Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What Peter is saying is that though the Lord was to come from the line of David, David is not the Lord. We know that Jesus is Lord because the Father has attested to this. And the way that the Father has attested to this is by doing miracles through Jesus, as prophesied by Isaiah, but also by raising him from the dead. And so Jesus did not need to claim it verbally. He proved it through the miracles and through his resurrection. A few weeks ago or a few months ago, uh, somehow, maybe it was Facebook, but, but Jeff, And Errol Johns put a post, I think, that they needed a stroller because one of their friends' uh, apartment had a fire and they needed to recollect things. And one of the things they needed was a stroller. And so Trish communicated back with them and said, okay, you can take our stroller. We'll put it in the back of our minivan. Just grab it after church on Sunday. You can take it. It'll be great. We want to get rid of it anyways. And so Sunday comes along and and we pack pack it in the car and we get here. And after the service, we're usually one of the last ones to leave. We walk out to the van and uh, we open the van door to trunk to put stuff in and the stroller's there. And so we thought, okay, they they forgot to pick up the stroller. And so as we're driving home, I call Jeff and I leave a message and I say, hey, uh, we still got the stroller, wondering if you want me to drop it off or if you want to come pick it up or what, just let me know. And so Jeff calls me back, and he says, no, we got, we got the stroller. I go, no, you don't. I mean, you don't have the stroller. We have the stroller. He goes, no, we grabbed the stroller. It's a pretty nice stroller. I'm like, you did not grab the stroller. I'm looking at the stroller right now. You did not grab the stroller. And then it dawned on us. He went into someone else's van, and he grabbed someone else's stroller. You see, the problem with this whole scenario is that we did not give him enough details to recognize which one was our van. And we did not give him enough details to let him recognize which one was the stroller that we were giving to him. In verse 36, we read the conclusion of Peter's sermon, really the summary of Peter's sermon. He goes on more. But in verse 36, he says, listen, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. How can we be certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ? How can we recognize that he is the promised one, the Messiah? It's because the God, the Father, has attested to it with absolute certainty. No one else does the miracles Jesus does. No one else raises from the dead like Jesus does. No one else sends the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the first fundamental of our faith is that we recognize Jesus of Nazareth is both Lord and Christ. The second fundamental of our faith is repentance to Jesus. Now you may wonder, why do I need to repent to Jesus? I've never seen the guy face to faith. I never did anything to him. But remember back to verse 23. Peter says, this Jesus the one that we just said is Lord in Christ, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, it's interesting that Peter would say, you crucified him. Because remember the audience that Peter is talking to. If you remember the map from last week, Pentecost was a feast in which Jews from all over the world came together. And you may remember the list we read through, but there's a lot of different areas, including Egypt and Rome and Mesopotamia and all over the world, they came in. And so certainly those people were not all there 50 days earlier shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. And so how could Peter possibly say to this crowd, many of whom were not there when Jesus was crucified, how could he say to them, you crucified and killed Jesus? And I would say that Peter's not only speaking that to the original audience, but he's also speaking it to you today, that you crucified and killed Jesus. Now you may be wondering, like Peter's original audience, how can I be guilty of Jesus' death? I wasn't even there. But you don't have to be there to be guilty of murder. You see, if I showed that you had murdered someone, if you had hired a hitman or if you did something else, That through your thoughts and your decisions and your actions, that you were indeed guilty of murder, even if you did not pull the trigger. And so, to be honest, you don't really have to be there to be guilty. And what Peter says is that we are responsible for Jesus' death. Because of our thoughts, because of our decisions, because of our actions, we murdered Jesus. The reason Jesus died was not because the Jews turned against him. It was not because the Roman guards were too powerful for him. The reason Jesus was crucified, the reason Jesus died, the reason Jesus was murdered was because of your thoughts, your actions and your decisions. Jesus was crucified because it is the sin, it is the it is the penalty for sin that you deserve. 1 Peter 2 says it this way, Christ suffered for you. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. And so let me ask you this question. Who killed Jesus? The right answer is, I did. I killed Jesus. You know, in college, my friend used to say, whenever we sin, it's like we're spitting on Jesus's face as he's going to the cross. But Peter takes it up a whole nother notch. He says, you're not just spitting on Jesus. You killed Jesus. You murdered Jesus. You were the one hammering the nails into his hands and into his feet. You see, it was our sin that killed the author of life. It was our trespasses that caused his pain. It was our thoughts and actions that made him endure the wrath of God. And yet, as we read in verse 23, it was also the plan of God. Did you catch that? Verse 23 again, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the, not just the plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This term foreknowledge means to "for love." And so yes, it was our sin that killed Jesus, but it was also the plan of God, the plan of a God who loved us before the beginning of the world. Romans 5:8, a verse you're so familiar with, says this: "But God shows His love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so how should we respond to this great reality that we, by our sin, killed Jesus, the lover of our souls, and yet at the same time, by the definite plan of God, through his wondrous love, he gave up his only boy to be a sacrifice for our sin. How should we respond to these great truths? Verse 36, look along with me if you would. Again, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This term cut to the heart is a phrase that has stuck with me all week. And it's kind of hard to define it. It Really, it doesn't occur anywhere else in Scripture. But I've wondered, how do I articulate what cut to the heart means? And I think sometimes a story is a better definition than words. I don't know if you've ever heard of the story, the legend of Gellert, the dog. Anyone heard this story before, this legend? Okay. Gellert, no one? Good, okay. Then you don't know if I'm saying his name wrong. Gellert, the dog. But Gellert was a legendary dog from Northwest Wales. And in this story, Gellert belonged to this prince. Well, one day the prince goes away to go hunting and he leaves home, Gellert the dog and his baby boy sleeping. Well, when the prince returns, he comes to check on his baby boy and much to his horror, as he opens up the door, he sees the crib is turned upside down and there is blood all over the place, all over the top of the crib, all over the floor and all over the muzzle of his dog, Gellert. Immediately the prince draws his sword and in sadness and rage, plunges the sword into his dog, Geller, until he hears the last dying yelp of that dog. And as he hears the last dying yelp of that dog, he hears another noise. And he turns over the crib, and there is his baby boy, safe and sound, laying right next to a dead wolf. The wolf that Geller had killed to save the baby. Could you imagine how the prince would have been cut to the heart? Great joy, his boy is alive. Great sadness, he had killed the one who saved him. Friends, I know far too frequently that my heart grows complacent to the cross. My heart grows cold to the reality of the gospel. There are far too many times that I try to get past the fundamentals and I lose sight of the thing that matters most. And so, my prayer for me and for you is that we would see this good news, the fundamentals of our faith, that we would see the gospel afresh and that it would cut us to the heart. We murdered Jesus by our sin, but it was the plan of God because He for loved you before the beginning of the world. Verse 37, Peter continues. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Now, throughout most of Scripture, it just simply says repent and believe. And so some people mistake this term baptism and say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But the majority of Scripture does not say that. You see, what baptism is in this case is it is an external proclamation of what you believe. It shows your faith, it demonstrates your faith. And so in a way, Peter, again, is saying repent and believe and then be baptized, that's the necessary step. But the focus here is on repentance. And the question is, what is repentance? Well, we have a confession of faith that says it much better than I do. And the Westminster Larger Catechism, verse question 76, it asks this question, what is repentance unto life? And I love the answer. It says this, repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sin and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sin and that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. Friends, in every other religion, repentance ends with dismay. Repentance ends with sadness because all repentance does is it vocalizes how much harder you need to work to get right with God. But in Christianity repentance cuts to the heart and lead us not only to sadness over our sin, but great joy in the gospel. Because when we repent, we are not only reminded that our sins are what killed our Savior, but we are also reminded that God foreloved us so much that he decided to send his only son. This was his definite plan to win us to himself, that we might be accepted by him, not on account of our righteousness, but on account of the righteousness of the one who died in our place. And so the fundamentals of our faith is that we must recognize Jesus as Christ and Lord. We must repent to Jesus for killing him while at the same time rejoicing, knowing that by his wounds we are healed. And finally, we must receive from Jesus. Verse 38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The most precious words to someone who has been cut to the heart, the most wonderful words to someone who is convinced of the filth of their sin, the most glorious words to someone who understands that they have murdered Jesus are these words Your sins are forgiven. Do you believe that? Do you believe? your sins are forgiven. You are no longer condemned because you are forgiven. God is no longer against you because you are forgiven. You need not repay any debt to God because you are forgiven. We receive forgiveness from Jesus, but that's not all. We also receive the promise and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit these past few weeks and how the Holy Spirit empowers us for the mission to share the good news of Christ with the world. But the Holy Spirit does far more than that. The Spirit convicts us of sin when we are indulging in self-destructive behaviors. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth when we are believing lies. The Holy Spirit regenerates us when we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The Spirit leads us when we know which way, when we don't know which way to go. The Spirit sanctifies us when we are overwhelmed with temptation. The Spirit teaches us to pray when we don't know how to speak to God. The Spirit bears witness in us that we are children of God. The Spirit produces in us fruit that is evidenced that God is working in us. The Spirit gives us spiritual gifts to serve the body. The Spirit washes and renews us when we are overwhelmed by our sin. The Spirit brings unity to the body when we are potentially divisive. The Spirit is a guarantee and deposit of a future resurrection when we suffer through the pains and decays of this world. The Spirit seals us into the day of redemption when we question God's love. The Spirit speaks to, in, and through us when we know not what to say. The Spirit brings liberty when we are tempted to return to bondage. The Spirit cries out from our hearts, Abba, Father, when we feel alone and like orphans. The Spirit enables us to wait when all we want to do is go. The Spirit strengthens our spirits when we feel so weak. The Spirit enables us to obey the truth when all we want to do is rebel. The Spirit dispenses God's love into our hearts to overcome the hatred of the world. The Spirit gives us joy when we are tempted to despair. And the Spirit comforts us when we are grieved by the sorrows of this world, you see, the Holy Spirit is a magnificent gift. The Holy Spirit brings magnificent things, and it's not always speaking in other languages. Sometimes it is much more profound things. Sometimes it is these things, and that is why Jesus says to his disciples, "It is better for you that I go away, because I will send you the Holy Spirit." Verse thirty-three again says. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then in verse 38. He says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say you might receive. He says, but if you repent and believe, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. What a precious gift the Holy Spirit is. It's a gift of the groom to his bride, the church. And so through Jesus receive forgiveness of sins, We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we receive salvation. Verse 40. And with many other words, preachers are good at putting in many other words. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Just as our need for forgiveness implies that we are guilty, our need for salvation implies that we are in danger. And so what is the danger? The danger we are in is the justice of God for all eternity. And he says, save yourself. Now, this passage, verse 40, save yourself from this crooked generation. This is Old Testament language, Old Testament lingo that Peter is using, speaking to Jews. And they would know what this means. You see, in the Old Testament... People were defying God, rejecting his warnings, rejecting his message, rejecting his messenger. And what Peter is warning them is, do not reject the message of the gospel. Do do not reject the fundamentals of the faith and do not reject God's messenger, Jesus Christ. And so we are to receive salvation by humbling ourselves and calling upon the name of the Lord. Verse 41, so those who received his word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. If 3,000 murders of Jesus could be saved on a given day, today can be your day. Today can be your day to recognize that Jesus is your Lord, that Jesus is your Savior, that Jesus is the Christ, to repent of your sin, to confess, my sins have killed Jesus, but to know the love of God for those who trust in Christ. Several years ago, a friend gave our family one of their cars. We didn't pay for it. We just received it. And this car had a lot of fancy features that Trish and I weren't weren't used to. It had four-wheel drive, which is awesome in the snow, but also good for hauling firewood, which we do a lot of. It had a sunroof so you could see the stars, and you could open it up and enjoy the breeze. And it had heated seats, which are good for warming your posterior, right? Right? Now here's the thing, we did not receive these gifts one at a time. It's not like we received the car and then a few weeks later we received the four-wheel drive and a few weeks later we received the sunroof and a few weeks later we received the heated seats. All of them came together. They were all one package. How do we receive the forgiveness of sins? How do we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? How do we receive salvation for all eternity? The answer is simple. All you have to do is receive Jesus. Just as we had to just receive the car, all you have to do is receive Jesus. It is a package deal, and there are riches beyond what we could communicate today. We just went into a little bit of what the Holy Spirit does, and that's just a glimpse of what comes with Jesus. It is a package deal. If you want all the gifts of Jesus, all you have to do is receive Jesus. And so today can be the day that you receive Jesus and receive all the blessings, the forgiveness of sins, the blessing of the Holy Spirit and salvation for your soul. Let me end with this. Vince, the, 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 the article by James Clear was titled Vince Lombardi on the hidden power of mastering the fundamentals. And he goes on in this story to say this, Lombardi's methodical coverage of the fundamentals continued throughout training camp. Every player reviewed how to block. Every player reviewed how to tackle. They opened up the playbook and started at page one. At one point, Max McGee, Packers Pro Bowl receiver, joked with Lombardi and said, uh, Coach, could you please slow down a little bit? You're getting too fast for us. Lombardi evidently smiled and continued to obsess over the fundamentals. His team would become the best team in the league that year as they won the Super Bowl 37-0 or NFL championship, whatever it was called. Lombardi would never again lose a playoff game. In total, Lombardi won five NFL championships. If you want to have victory in Christ, if you want to know the joy of the gospel, focus on the fundamentals of our faith. Focus on the gospel. Recognize Jesus as Lord in Christ. Repent of your sin, believing that Jesus paid for it all and receive our Savior and the gifts that come with our Savior. Receive the forgiveness of sins, the glory of the Holy Spirit, and the salvation of our soul for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fundamentals, the glorious fundamentals of our faith. May we never grow tired. May we never become calloused. May our hearts always be cut to know and love the grace of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.